Well, good morning, everybody. If this is your first time joining us here in Hosanna in our building here, or if you're joining us online, we want to say welcome to all of you. If for those of you in our building, if you're watching online, you're not getting the, uh, the joy of this moment, but for those of you in the room, you may have noticed uh, some differences here in our sanctuary. And uh, the reasons for that, you know, over the years we've been praying about remodeling the sanctuary a little bit. And, uh, you know, but budgets are tight, so what do you think? Right? <laughs> no, actually, this is all for our vacation Bible school, which starts tomorrow. We're so excited about that. And uh, we do want to say that for those of you that are sitting under the, uh, the pennants and flags there, uh, that means you're all volunteered to serve at VBS, so congratulations. <laughs> yeah, no, uh, that's not true either. Um, no, we're just uh, very excited about what is going on for VBS this week. And so I do understand that if you're towards the back of the room, the flags there that are going across are kind of blocking the screen. And so um, it's for one Sunday. So I'm just going to ask you to kind of bear with us for the moment or, or a crazy thought, move forward. Right? You could do that as well. So, but I made sure that I could see all your eyes in the back row so that it wouldn't uh, infect the teaching too much here. So, so bear with us today, but we're really blessed uh, for VBS this week. But for those of you that don't know, I am Pastor Nathan, and this morning we're going to be looking at Revelation chapter 11, the sounding of the seventh trumpet. Now, this section of Revelation that we find ourselves in uh, we are right around the middle of the Great Tribulation period, the middle of this seven-year period called the Tribulation that we refer to as the Day of the Lord. That's what this entire time period is referred to scripturally. Now, the sounding of the seventh trumpet judgment opens with a proclamation, and it's a proclamation of comfort and encouragement to those who are in the midst of the Tribulation period. Um, some very, very devastating things are and have been taking place as we've been looking at this time period. And so in this moment, as the seventh trumpet sounds, this encouragement comes out to encourage those who have trusted in God for their salvation during this time and those that are then frightened by God's judgments on sin falling on around them. Because you see, although salvation is available to those um, who haven't confessed Christ um, before tribulation, during the tribulation period, people are still able to get saved, but unfortunately during that time, the age of grace is over and the age of God's judgments are pouring up upon the earth, and so there's some very scary and devastating things happening, but this proclamation that the seventh trumpet opens with is, is really the picture of hope for them. It's the picture of hope, it's the promise of what's to come in their future. Now we know, as I said, this tribulation period, also referred to as the 70th week of Daniel, will last seven years. Uh, the Bible teaches that in multiple different places. The first three and a half years of this tribulation period are, are an apparent time of peace, if you will, as a world leader comes on the scene called the Antichrist, and he seems to solve all the world's problems. Uh, most, most significantly, he seems to solve the problems in the Middle East as he appears to bring peace between the Jews and, and the Muslims and, and allows the Jews to rebuild their temple there on the Temple Mount. But even so, during this time, God's judgments have begun to fall upon the earth. The second three and a half years of this seven-year period are called the Great Tribulation. And as everything escalates during this time, as literally all hell starts to break loose upon earth, God's judgments are increasing in severity, getting worse and worse and worse as each one falls. And during this time, all who confess the name of Christ, all who confess the name of Jesus, both Jew and Gentile, are under incredibly heavy persecution. Many are even martyred for their faith, as we'd seen earlier in Revelation. And so these days, these, these last times of the tribulation period, this last three and a half years, although it is only three and a half years long, for those that are in it, for those that are falling under these judgments, even though they have given their life to Christ at that time, these judgments are still falling upon the earth. It is a time for them that is a very, very difficult, and it seems like an eternity, I would imagine. It seems like a forever. And so this seventh trumpet opens with this proclamation of not only what is happening, what this is all about, 
but what is to come. It's a future look at the end of all of it. And God declares this look at the end of all of it in the past tense. Because we know God is timeless, God is outside of time, God sees the beginning from the end. And so he gives this proclamation in the tense that it's already happened. And so for us today, there's hope. There's always hope and there's continued hope that, that in the face of the dark direction of human history, God's kingdom will come. And I thought it was pretty cool yesterday as we were setting up here for VBS and setting up this castle prop behind us because the whole theme of our VBS this year is Keepers of the Kingdom. Without really having paid attention to that, the title of this morning's study is Your Kingdom Come. And I just thought, Lord, that's really neat. I really appreciate you doing little things like that. And we know that God's kingdom will come. Human history is heading somewhere. We know human history is moving in a direction And from God's perspective, everything is right on schedule. It's exactly as it should be and how it should be. And, you know, as God's people, if we know that the future is coming, and we know what the future is because we have it revealed in God's word, we should be people investing in that future and getting ready for that future. For the Christian, our future, our hope, is heaven is eternity with our creator, and that is the future that we should be investing in above all. And so the forecast here in Revelation chapter 11 in the midst of the growing storms of tribulation is that it's all gonna be fine soon. It's all gonna be fine soon. Hang on a little bit longer as the one who knows the future reveals exactly what it will be. And so that's what we need to hear at times. We need to hear that it's gonna be over soon. It's gonna get better. That's what we need to hear at times of difficulty and it's what those suffering and tribulation will need to hear at that time. And so that's what we're gonna be looking at this morning. But first, we're gonna spend some time in worship, praising God because he is worthy. He is almighty. And again, as I said, if you're in the back and you're like, those flags are blocking my view of the screen, feel free to move forward. There's plenty of seats up front. Let's pray. God, we love you. Lord, we're so excited for you and what you're doing, Lord. And that's a strange thing to say in the view of tribulation, Lord, as we see in your word these devastating judgments falling upon the earth, Lord. But God, for those that have put their trust in you as their Lord and Savior, God, we know that all of this means that your kingdom is coming, that your kingdom is almost here. And Lord, we look forward to that. God, you taught us to pray, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Lord, we desire that so much. We desire for your name to be glorified by your creation, God, as it should be. And yet, Lord, we know we live in a world today that, that um, doesn't do that in, in most ways. But God, we as your people are here in this world today, Lord. Lights on a hill to take the light of the gospel of Jesus Christ, to share the hope of heaven, to share the truth of the coming kingdom of God with people who don't yet know you, Lord that they would too have salvation as we have found salvation. And so God, I pray, Lord, as we study your word today that you would encourage us about your kingdom come. That, Lord, we would draw the same encouragement from the words now as it is intended to be for those that are gonna read it then in the midst of tribulation. And that, Lord, we would find our hope. We would find our peace. We would find our everything in the truth that your kingdom is coming that righteousness will be restored, that sin will be fully and finally dealt with one day, and that, God, we will be in perfect righteousness and peace and perfection and joy and all that it is with you, Lord. So, God, encourage us to be people about your work today as we are not only living life here on this earth, but, Lord, investing in the true future, the real future, the most important future to come, Lord, and that is the heavenly kingdom that is yours. We love you so much, and we thank you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right. We are in Revelation chapter 11, starting in verse 15, and so if you will read with me. It says, the seventh angel blew his trumpet, and there were loud voices in heaven, saying, the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he will reign forever." and ever. What a glorious thing. You know, we have been looking forward to 
God's coming kingdom for a long time, I think all of us since we got saved, right? And as we've been studying through Revelation, we have finally arrived here at the seventh trumpet. We've been waiting for it ever since chapter eight. So far, uh, what we've seen is four trumpets sounded, after which a messenger in the sky came, and uh, it says it was an eagle or in the form of an eagle, and it said, woe, woe, woe to the inhabitants of the earth because of what is about to come, referencing the fifth, sixth, and seventh trumpets. And so the three woes that were referenced there were referring to these final three trumpet judgments. And if you remember, the trumpet judgment started, the first one was really the destruction of the greenery, grasses and trees and stuff on the earth. The second trumpet was the sea was dealt with. The sea was destroyed and devastated. The third trumpet, all the freshwater sources, the rivers and things of that nature were destroyed. The fourth trumpet, the sky was struck, where we saw that the sun and the moon and the stars and the light was all affected. And then we came to the first woe, the fifth trumpet judgment, as hordes of demons were released upon the earth, allowed to torment people for five months. The torment was so bad, we read there, that people wanted to die, but somehow, someway, they were unable to. They couldn't die during this period. And then we came to the second woe, which was the sixth trumpet, where we read about four fallen angels who had been bound at the Euphrates River that were released, raising an army of 200 million and being let loose upon the earth to not just torment people, but to kill people as a part of that judgment. And now we come to the seventh trumpet, the final woe. But what's interesting here is after the devastation of the first and the second woes, which are devastating, this one opens up with loud praise in heaven, worship, celebration, proclamation. I mean, that's a huge contrast to what we've seen so far. You, if you remember at the opening after the sixth seal was opened and as part of the interlude between the sixth and seventh seal, we read that there was silence in heaven for a half an hour, a very somber moment, a very anticipatory moment as people were waiting for the next judgment to pour out as the judgments were getting worse and worse. But here after the sixth trumpet, at the sounding of the seventh trumpet, instead of silence, it says we have loud noises. And those loud noises are referring to celebratory, celebratory noises. It's a celebration that's going on. Now why is everybody so happy? It's devastating what's taking place on the earth. Why is there celebration in heaven? Woe isn't a happy word. Woe means devastation and destruction, and this is the third woe. Why, why is heaven celebrating? Why are they rejoicing? Because it's bad. But the reason they're rejoicing in heaven is because they see the light at the end of the tunnel. The end is coming. The end is almost there. It's almost done. And so worship goes up in heaven. From a chronological point of view, um, this seventh trumpet and, and all that happens as a part of the seventh trumpet, all together collectively, it brings us to the very end of the tribulation period. The seventh trumpet and the events of the seventh trumpet really encompass everything up to the second coming of Jesus Christ and his reign upon the earth. And that is why this proclamation is made, this announcement is made here. The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he will reign forever and ever. Now what it's looking at and referring to, the, 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 the specific events of the seventh trumpet time period, or the, the specific judgments that, that take part, that, that are poured out as part of the seventh uh, trumpet, the, the judgments that'll bring us all the way to the very end, the actual judgments themselves are recorded in chapter 15 and 16 of Revelation, and we'll look at those when we get there. But here, what is taking place in Revelation 11 is, is, is almost a look above and past all of that. It's looking past all of the events to come in the final parts of the great tribulation period. It's looking above all that to the end. 
And what we're seeing is the rejoicing taking place in heaven of that end about to come. If you remember back in Revelation chapter 10, verse 7, it said this, But in the days when the seventh angel will blow his trumpet, then the mystery of God will be completed as he announced to his servants, the prophets. And if you remember, what that was referring to is, is in the time period of the sounding of that seventh trumpet and all that takes place there, as a part of that conclusion to the tribulation period, the mystery of God will be completed. The mystery of God, the, the mystery of God's patience, the mystery of why does God delay, the mystery of, of, of why hasn't God poured out all of his final judgment on sin like he prophesied he would, like the prophets spoke of, why the waiting? All of that will come to its completion, its fruition, and the mystery of God will be over. It'll be fulfilled. And that whole concept of God's final dealing with sin and his coming reign, it's about to happen is what it was talking about there in Revelation 10:7. Well, if we fast forward to Revelation chapter 15, verse 1, it says, Then I saw another great and awe-inspiring sign in heaven, seven angels with the seven last plagues. For with them, God's wrath will be completed. And so it's with these seven last plagues that God wraps everything up. And the introduction of these plagues is a part of the sounding of the seventh trumpet. Just as the seventh seal ushered in the seven trumpets, the seventh trumpet is going to usher in the seven bowl judgments. And the idea is that this seventh trumpet is what is announcing the end. It's, it's announcing that God is bringing his wrath to a completion. And after that, it's over. After that, it's over. So when the seventh trumpet sounds... What is going to take place as a part of the seventh trumpet is this rapid-fire judgment of bowls being poured out on earth at the end of tribulation. And after those seven bowl judgments are poured out, it's over. This age of earth's history is over. It's done. And so chapter 11, however, what we're looking at here is the anticipatory look at that completion. So here in verse 15... It started with loud voices and a great announcement. Loud voices and a proclamation. It's, it's almost like a victory chant, if you read it that way. It's like a victory chant. The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of our Christ. Now, the actual description of that kingdom switch that's what we're going to see later on in chapter 19 when we get there. And so we'll look at it then at the very end of the tribulation period. But here in chapter 11, verse 15, we have this anticipatory, this, this assumptive, this, this victory declaration. You know, it's kind of like the idea of, like if you watch sports, and sometimes when you're like, you're still in the last quarter or the last inning or whatever, you're, there's still time left in the game, but it's obvious. You're like, we won. The game's over we won. That's kind of what's taking place here. Yeah, there's, there's still five minutes to go, but we won, right? That's this declaration. God has won. And so as a part of this declaration, it says in verse 15 that he will reign forever and ever, that his kingdom is about to come. His kingdom is, is, is coming to pass, the conclusion of it, the final judgment of sin, the dealing with all of that completely. It, it's here, it's arrived, is what's being declared, as the last final minutes of tribulation are being, being looked at. And he says, when his kingdom comes, he will reign forever and ever. Back in Daniel, um, the prophet Daniel, he tells us that there was a time where King Nebuchadnezzar, who was at that time the king of Babylon, and effectively the king of the entire world, had a dream. And this man, King Nebuchadnezzar, was a man who, who thought, I'm invincible. Nobody can conquer me. Nobody can defeat me. He, he calls Daniel to him, and he says, Daniel, I, I had this really weird dream, and I need to tell it to you, and, and can you tell me what it means? And so he says, Daniel, I had this dream of this huge statue, this huge statue, and the head of the statue was made of gold. But then the chest of the statue was made of silver. The abdomen and thigh area of the statue was made of brass. The legs were made of iron. 
and the feet of this statue and its ten toes were made of iron and clay mixed together. And he goes, Daniel, what does it mean? And so the Lord gave Daniel the interpretation of this dream for King Nebuchadnezzar, the world global leader of that time. And Daniel said, God has given you a vision of what is to come after you. And he said, you, Nebuchadnezzar, you're the, you're the head of gold, right? But after you, there are going to be many more worldwide kingdoms that are going to come upon the earth. He says, you are the head of gold, but other kingdoms are going to come, and, and, they're, and they're going to be less, a little bit less than you all the way down. But finally, at the end of all of that, at the end of history, as you see these feet with ten toes, he goes, at the end of history, there's going to be ten nations that band together to make one worldwide government that will be ruled by someone at that time. And Nebuchadnezzar goes, well, that, that's, that's cool, Daniel. Thanks for that. But something bothers me about the dream. He goes, in that dream, as I was looking at that statue, this big rock came flying out of heaven, and it hit the statue, and it disintegrated the statue. And then that rock grew to become a huge mountain. And Nebuchadnezzar said, Daniel, what does that mean? And Daniel said, in the day that those ten nations come together and have this worldwide kingdom led by this world leader, in those days, God will come and destroy all of them. And in that destruction, God will then set up his kingdom, a kingdom that will never be destroyed, a kingdom that will last forever, a kingdom that won't be left for others. Because you see in that statue, every worldwide kingdom and every worldwide leader that has ever lived, they eventually die. And then that kingdom is left for someone else. And then more people step in, and then it's left, and it's left, and it's left. But eventually, at the end of history, God is going to set up a kingdom that'll be forever and ever. That won't be left to anybody, other, anybody else to come and rule after because God will be reigning there forever and ever. And this is incidentally what's going to happen at the second coming of Jesus Christ. And we're going to see this in chapter 19 of Revelation, that all of man's kingdoms, all of man's governments, all, all of that is going to come to a screeching halt. There's going to be no diplomatic negotiations. There's going to be no summits in conferences. There's going to be none of that. God is going to come and take over completely. And this was all prophesied. There is actually a prediction about Jesus Christ, God Almighty, coming to rule. When he was born, we read in Luke chapter 1 that the angel came and visited Mary and said this in chapter 1 of Luke verse 31. The angel said, now listen, you will conceive and give birth to a son, and you will name him Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David. He will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and his kingdom will have no end. So at the very beginning, at the very beginning of, of Jesus' life here on earth, if you will, at the very beginning, this prediction was made that Jesus would come and he would be the ultimate king of kings. He would be the Lord of lords. And that's how we refer to him. That's what we know him as, is the coming king of kings and lord of lords. And so over the course of his life, it's interesting. You read throughout the gospels and the life of Jesus, he, he loved to speak about his kingdom come. It was one of his favorite topics, a major theme of his ministry. In fact, in his very first message, he said, repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. In Luke chapter 4, when he was talking to his disciples, he said to them, look, I must preach the kingdom of God to other cities also, and so we need to go to other places. In Matthew chapter 13, you have this whole section of Jesus' teaching that are referred to as the kingdom of parables as Jesus kept saying the kingdom of God is like the kingdom of God is like the kingdom of God is like then back in Matthew chapter 5 verse 7 you have what is effectively the kingdom manifesto as Jesus goes through really how life is lived in the kingdom of God as he goes through the beatitudes and all these parables at the end of his life Pontius Pilate even said to Jesus are you a king? 
And you remember Jesus said, you say rightly that I am a king. But then he added, but my kingdom is not of this world. Because if it was, my servants would rise up and fight. But they don't, because it's not. And then after Jesus rose from the dead, Scripture tells us that he spent 40 days teaching his disciples, quote, things pertaining to the kingdom of God. And then as I mentioned in the, in the opening, Jesus even taught his followers how to pray. You guys remember that, right? The Lord's Prayer. He said, our Father in heaven, your kingdom come, your will be done. Older translations add the on earth as it is in heaven. Newer translations omit that. But the idea is that he was teaching his followers to be kingdom-minded. To be kingdom-minded, to be about the kingdom of God and what all that means. But if we look around the earth today, that's not what we see. We don't see God's kingdom here on earth in the sense of God ruling and reigning and everybody reverencing him as king of kings. We don't, we don't see that on earth today. His kingdom hasn't come yet. I definitely wouldn't say we see his will being reflected on earth. We see people, servants of his, reflecting his will, but as a, as a global uh, creation, as a global entity, earth and mankind is not reflecting the will of God. What God intended when he put man on the earth originally, his original intent for man on earth, that's, it's not what's happening in the earth today. We're people that are stained by sin. We're people that are scarred by rebellion against God. We're people that are just messed up in so many ways. But guess what, church? One day that will change. One day that will change. And until then, we do as Jesus commanded his disciples, taught them to do, and taught us to do. We pray. We pray for the return of Jesus Christ. We pray for his kingdom come. We pray for his will be done. We look forward to that day. We pray for the, for the consummation of, of this announcement we are reading about here in Revelation chapter 11. But we don't just pray for it to come in the sense of like it's some far off thing that, that we experience in no way here and now. It's not just a future kingdom because the kingdom of God isn't just something to come. The kingdom of God, in a sense, does begin now because the minute the king resides in your own heart, the second the king of kings and the Lord of lords, God of glory, resides in your own heart through your faith in him, through your confession that he is God and that he died for you and your cry to him to say, God, please forgive me of all of my sins. The moment that happens, the kingdom of God has come to your life. And you begin to enjoy at least some of the benefits of being a subject of his kingdom. But in that process, we are taught in scripture too that, hey, look, our citizenship is not of this earth. We are citizens of heaven. So while you are a citizen of the kingdom of God and you get to experience some of the benefits of that citizenship, right now, we're in a foreign land. We're in a land that doesn't belong to God, that doesn't honor God, that doesn't love God. And so we are here as sojourners carrying a message. And so yes, while we do enjoy some of the benefits of that citizenship now in our individual lives, there is something so much better to come in its ultimate fulfillment. And that's what we look forward to. That's what we hang on to, in, in, in especially in difficult times. That's what we hang on to when things don't make sense. We hang on to that when we look around the world and we see the evil that is being perpetrated and we say, God, why? We talked about that in a study a couple weeks ago. That we hang on to the truth and the hope and the promise that God's kingdom is coming. And that one day, God's will will be done. That it will be a world of righteousness, a place of righteousness, led by God himself. But now we come to the 24 elders, and, and we see these 24 elders often in the book of Revelation. Verse 16, it says, the 24 elders who were seated before God on their thrones fell face down and worshiped God. Now these guys pop up in heavenly scenes. 
to give praise to God. That's what we see them do over and over. They, they, they pop up, they appear on the scene, and, and, and it's like they fall down on their faces. And it's not because they have trouble walking or anything like that. The idea is that they're just overwhelmed with the glory of God and his awesomeness and his holiness, and they, just, they, they, they can't help but to fall down on their faces in worship of him. Now, these 24 elders, as we've talked about in the past, we know they're not angels because angels, not a single time in Scripture, are ever seen seated on thrones. So these 24 elders are not angels. They represent the church. They represent the redeemed, the glorified church in heaven, specifically the the church that has caught up to heaven prior to this tribulation period, an event we refer to as, as the rapture of the church. As God takes the redeemed and the faithful out of the world before he begins to pour out his judgments upon this earth. This is incidentally the third time we've seen these 24 elders give praise to God. The first time was in chapter 4. As John was caught up to heaven and before tribulation happens, he's given this beautiful picture, this scene of the throne room of God, and all he sees there is worship taking place and worship, and he sees these 24 elders there worshiping God, and there in chapter four, they're worshiping God because he's their creator. And then in chapter five, we see the 24 elders again, they're worshiping God now because he's their redeemer. And here, we see them now worshiping God as the rightful king and judge of all the earth. And so what do they say in verse 17? It says, we give you thanks, Lord God, the Almighty, who is and who was, because you have taken your great power and have begun to reign. The nations were angry, but your wrath has come. The time has come for the dead to be judged and to give the reward to your servants, the prophets, to the saints, and to those who fear your name, both small and great. And the time has come to destroy those who destroy the earth. And so these 24 elders, they fall on their face in worship, and what do they say? We give you thanks, Lord God. That's how they start their worship here. And it's just interesting. Like at the sounding of the seventh trump, there's a lot of commotion going on in heaven here. There's a lot of activity. There's a lot of noise. You have the trumpet sounded. You have these loud voices. You have worship going on. And, and it's just, it's, it's this picture, at least what I see is it's loud. Now, this may be an unpopular opinion, but I think God likes loud worship. I think he does. We see worship loudly multiple times throughout God's word. And since we see loud worship in heaven a lot, I think we might get used to it here and now, okay? Um, Because it's going to be that way for forever. Now, I know loud is a subjective thing (laughs) to different people, and and I think God knows that, right? And, you know, when we get to heaven, whatever loud is for you, it's going to be perfectly that loud. But the idea here. If we are God's people and, and the kingdom of God has, has come to us through our, through our acceptance of him as our Lord and Savior, our, our faith placed in him for what he did, if, if, if we are God's people and the kingdom of God has come to us because we've received the king, the idea is that we should then naturally be thankful people. We should naturally be thankful people. Giving of thanks should be second nature for us as God's people. It really should. That, that's, a, that's a function of the Holy Spirit dwelling within us. That's a function of our hearts being redeemed and transformed is that we should be thankful people. Paul said in Philippians chapter 2, verse 14, do everything without grumbling and arguing. Arguing is the CSB version. You might be more familiar with uh, the New King James where it says do everything without grumbling and complaining. Right? And that idea of complaining is the idea of arguing. Because when we're complaining, we're really arguing against our circumstances. And when we're complaining against God, what we're really doing is arguing with God for what he is allowing in that moment. We are daring to say, God, I think you're wrong. I don't agree with this. This isn't right. 
And Paul said, look, do everything without that attitude. You know, I mean, if we're honest, if we're honest, I think most of us are probably way better at complaining than we are at giving thanks. You know, it's like, it's like as kids are growing up, you know, and the first time the kid, you know, tries to hide the cookie behind their back that they took off the, out of the cookie jar, and you're like, who taught you how to do that, right? Nobody had to teach them how to lie. Nobody had to teach them how to deceive, you know, and, and, and really nobody has to teach us how to complain about things. It's just, it's a part of our fallen nature. It's a part of our fallen nature to complain and to grumble about stuff, you know, um, I heard this, some people consider it a maximum, a maxim of life, but the idea is that nobody ever says anything until they want to complain about something. And you may have seen that, you know, if, if you've led something, you know, and, and you're pouring your heart and soul into it, you know, and sometimes it's discouraging, nobody ever comes up and says, hey, great job, great job, but the second something goes wrong, wow, do you hear about it, right? And, 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 it's just, it's a part of our nature to do that. But right here in the middle of tribulation, in the middle of judgments, in the middle of destruction and devastation, in, in, in the middle of a time where I think anybody would go, well, I, I, I can understand the complaining and the grumbling, we see a song of thanksgiving. We see a song of praise. Why? Well, it tells us right there while they're praising him. Because you have taken your great power and have begun to reign. We give you thanks, Lord God Almighty, who is and who was, because you have taken your great power and have begun to reign. That's what they're praising him for. As they're watching, they're observing from heaven all this stuff take place. As they're going, wow, look at, look at the judgments falling. That's tragic and that's terrible. And the earth is being judged and the people are being judged. And ultimately, it's sin and wickedness that is being judged. They give this praise to God. They give this thanks to God because what they're seeing what they're observing, they're watching, they're thanking God for his sovereign power and the fact that he is exercising it. This is the moment that many of us are waiting for when we ask that question, why God do you allow this? Why God won't you punish that? Why God won't you judge them? Right now, God is waiting for all, for all who would hear the gospel of Jesus Christ to accept it. But the time is coming. The time is coming where he will exercise his sovereign power, where he will exercise his judgment. And in that exercising of his judgment and in that final judgment upon sin, then he is able um, to finally reign and fully exert his authority. No more holding back, right? As we've been looking at the judgments of Revelation, one of the things I see in there is, is God Almighty who could just, with a thought, obliterate everything, says, here's a judgment. And it doesn't obliterate everything. And then, no, here's a little bit more of a severe judgment. No, here's a little bit more of a severe, right? And he's doing this almost like he's holding back. And I think that is an accurate picture because God wants people to get saved. But the time will come where there's no more holding back. And the people in heaven are thanking him for it. Thanking him for it. And, and there is place for that, and it is a good thing. That when righteousness finally prevails, it's, it's praise God. It's when, when wickedness that, that fully and completely and finally and thoroughly rejects God completely, says, okay, gets what's coming to it, praise God. We don't want anybody to go to hell. God doesn't want anybody to go to hell, but many will choose to do so. And when they do, it's going to be righteous, and it's going to be just, and it's going to be right and appropriate. And what we see here is I'm thanking God for that. Thanking God that he followed through. <laughs> thanking God that he, he held the line, that he, that he maintained and, and enforced his standard. Thanking God for that. Verse 18, really, he goes on to say, the nations were angry and your wrath has come and the time has come for the dead to be judged and to give the reward to your servants, the prophets, the saints, and to those who fear your name, both small and great, and the time has come to destroy those who destroy the earth. This is, um, 
really encompassing uh, the mindset, that opening part, the nations were angry. It's encompassing the mindset of, of really the, the world over the entire seven-year tribulation period. The nations were angry, right? What he's mentioning here is national hostility. He's, he's mentioning international hostility. He's mentioning the fact that the worlds were angry at God and his people. And we see that today. We see that today, and it's only going to keep escalating. Earlier in chapter 11, we read about these two witnesses. That was our last look here. And we read that the world hated them so much, and they're witnessing about Jesus, that when they were murdered by the Antichrist, the whole world celebrated, it says, with joy and gifts. Gifts. People sent gifts to one another, celebrating the murder of these two witnesses who, who did what? Proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ. And they were so excited that they were dead that, that when they were murdered, they didn't even get the bodies. They just left them on the street for three and a half days to rot. They were angry with the 144,000 Jewish evangelists who had been on the scene and the multitudes won to Jesus because of their evangelism. And that anger, starting in the beginning of Revelation, carries all the way through. Some of them just hate God so much and will not repent. Revelation 16.9 at the fourth bowl judgment, it tells us the people blasphemed the name of God. There's no question whether it's God pouring these judgments out at this point, but they blaspheme his name instead of repenting. Revelation 16.11 at the fifth bowl judgment, it says again, they blasphemed the God of, heavens, the, God of the heavens. Revelation 16.21 at the seventh bowl judgment, it again says they blasphemed God. And then that word blasphemed means to revile or to speak against someone with hate, harmful, or injurious intent. Now, I, I, the question comes to my head, can you imagine someone recognizing God Almighty, creator of the universe, recognizing the judgments falling, and then still being in the place to revile his name, to speak against him with hate, to speak harm upon him? Can you imagine that? And then as I ask that question, I go, yeah, I can, because that's exactly what I did before I knew Jesus Christ. In one breath, I'd go, there is no God, but if he was real, right? And then I would just blaspheme. From the very beginning to the very end, mankind is rebellious against God, stubborn against his offer. They shake their fist at God instead of repenting of sins. But what does it say here in Revelation? But your wrath has come. But your wrath has come. This speaks of judgment. This speaks about what is happening during this time, what is happening up to this point in tribulation, and then what is looked at in, in, in what's to come as the tribulation closes through the bold judgments. Your wrath has come. Heaven is rejoicing at this. The 24 elders fall down in worship and, and, and are giving thanks for the judgment that is falling. And again, you go, why would the church get so excited about a God who would judge the earth? That's one of the critiques people have against that, right? You, you, you share judgment with them, right? This is, this is incidentally why some of us in our evangelism get afraid to, to um, share that part of the gospel, and all we want to do is, God loves you so much. That's all we want to say, right? God loves you so much. Oh, just, oh, please, please, God loves you so much. And then, and then, Sometimes we wonder, why, why won't people respond to that? We get it. And one of the foundational things about Ray Comfort in his ministry was the idea that if you don't warn people what they need to be saved from, they're not going to see any value in the saving. Right? You know, he uses an illustration of being on an airplane. The airplane's flying fine. Everything's good. And you run up to him and go, you need to put on the parachute. And they're like, Why? Plane's fine. But pop out a few windows, have a door open, nosedive that thing, see how fast they'll put the parachute on. And the idea is that, 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 that people are gonna, gonna just revile God and, and, and we're like, how, how, can, how can they think that? And then God says, my wrath is gonna come. My wrath is gonna be poured out. And we think, how can he do that? And then when we try and share that with people in evangelism, first they'll go, oh, there's no God. I don't care if he loves me. And then you share his judgment is coming upon you. And what do they say all the time? How could a God of love judge people? It's not logic 
that you're arguing with when you share the gospel with people. It's the heart. They're always going to have a reason to reject, you know, your logic. You got to get to the heart issue, the sin issue, right? Anyways, that's a, that's a different study. Um, but, but for some, it could be hard to consider that God's wrath will ever come upon the earth in, in, in the way that's being described here in Revelation. But um, if, you, if you just think today, if you think of places like India and in the Philippines and Thailand and um, places in Africa and in many other places where Christians today have had their families literally butchered before their eyes simply for confessing Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. Because it happens today. When you think of people being beheaded simply because they're Christians. You think of places where people have been actively persecuted and killed just because the world hates their faith that much. Well, thinking of those types of things, we might understand why the church would rejoice when God's wrath finally comes. So, and, and, and really, we saw a glimpse of this under the altar. If you remember back when we looked at the tribulation saints that were under the altar, and they were like, God, how long will you let this go on? How long are you going to let your people suffer? How long till you avenge our blood? Right? We lived for you, God. We, we lived for you. We loved you. We preached the gospel, and they hurt us. They killed us. They slaughtered us. When will you do something? Well, now that announcement comes, and they rejoice, and I think they rightly rejoice. The kingdoms of this world are over. God is stepping in. And the 24 elders, which represent the church there in heaven, are just um, worshiping at his perfect righteousness and his perfect righteous judgment. Um, It's coming. But right now, he is still patiently waiting. And if you don't know Jesus, you need to know him today because his wrath is coming. And if you don't like that message, I'm sorry. I love you enough to share it with you. But he says, the time has come for the dead to be judged and to give the reward to your servants, the prophets, to the saints, and to those who fear your name, both small and great. This may be referring to two events, two different events that happen a thousand years apart. And what I mean by that is later on in Revelation, we're going to read about something called the first resurrection, which is the resurrection of the just, right? The resurrection of believers, where it's, it's those who believe in Jesus Christ are, are rewarded for their um, service. And, and, and then there's this, they, they're, they're raised back. Then Jesus comes. He reigns on the earth for a thousand years. It's called the millennial kingdom. And then after that, you have this judgment called the great white throne judgment, where the wicked of all time are judged finally. And and that's where we're going to read that their names aren't found in the book of life, and then they're punished forever. But all of this is, is, is there's a time for the dead to be judged, and there's a time for the rewarding of the saints. There are, there are two different kind of events here, and there is a time coming for all those who serve God now through, through, through everything, through all the persecution, through all the difficulties, through all the hardship and the suffering. There's a time coming where, where rewards are going to be given for that service, that obedience to Christ in this, in this life. You know, in, in, I mean, Revelation 22:12, Jesus himself says, look, I'm coming soon, and my reward is with me to repay each person according to his work. So there is this biblical idea that there's going to be reward from our king for our service to him. And it isn't wrong to consider that. It isn't wrong to be motivated by that. I think God knew exactly who we were when he made us, and he knew that we were motivated by reward. It was just something that was a part of, of, of how he made us. It's one of the ways that, that, that we function, right? That's why we'll work harder because we know a promotion is at the end of the line, right? We'll, we'll push a little harder because there might be more profit in, in that, that business venture we're doing. We're, we're motivated by these things. And in 2 Corinthians 5.10 and Romans chapter 14, verse 10, there's this phrase that is written there by Paul called the judgment seat of God or the judgment seat of Christ. It's a very specific phrase he uses. In Romans 14.10, he says, for we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. And in 2 Corinthians 5.10, he says, for we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. Now, in both of those instances, he's writing to believers, And so that phrase, judgment seat of Christ, in the original language, it's the Bema seat. The Bema seat, and some of you might be familiar with this, but the Bema seat of Christ is is the reward seat, all right? 
It's the reward seat, if you will. So um, the idea is this, is that if you know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, you're not going to stand before God um, in, in judgment, in condemnation. You're never, that's all been taken care of. That was taken care of by the blood of Christ at the cross, right? Some people have this idea as Christians, it's like you're gonna die and we're all gonna get to heaven and we're gonna be sitting in a big auditorium like this and then God's gonna say, Nathan, and then my video is gonna play on the screen. And it's going to be embarrassing, right? You're like, oh, no, right? And then, and then your name, and then you're in it, right? And, and we think, and then it's going to be like, come forward for judgment. And it's like, that's not, that's not what's going to take place for the believer. Because judgment for our sin has all been dealt with at the cross. Jesus died for all of it. He shed his blood for all of it. And so the idea is that, that the judgment seat of Christ for the believer, it's a reward seat. It's a place where we're going to be rewarded to, to greater or lesser degrees based upon our obedience to, to God, based upon our service, the, based upon how we lived our life for him in knowing him here on this earth. That's the idea of all of this. It's not a judgment on sin, but it's a determination of reward based upon how you lived. Paul again references this in 1 Corinthians 3.8. He said, each will receive his own reward according to his own labor. And so then you go, wow, what's the reward? Right, Lamborghini? That'd be awesome. I heard there's streets of gold. Like, can you drift, you know, through heaven? I mean, that would be fun. Um, well, primarily, uh, the reward is to inherit the kingdom, to rule and reign with Christ. We are co-heirs with Christ and co-rulers with Christ, but specifically during the millennial kingdom. Um, but the Bible references crowns, different types of crowns we'll have, and there are these crowns we'll throw at his feet when we're worshiping him. But, but beyond the concept of, of being saved and ruling and reigning with him, I don't know exactly what those rewards will look like, okay? Um, I just know that they're promised. They're promised. And so... Um, I do know this, though, that most of the rewards that were promised, they're, they're not rewards that we're going to be getting here in this life. Um, so if you're the type of person who needs accolades and affirmation and pats on the back here on earth, uh, you, you're, you're probably going to have a miserable time. Um, because here on earth, serving Jesus, although there are blessings to come, yes, serving Jesus here on this earth means a lot of misunderstanding and being misjudged and being misinterpreted and difficulty and trouble. It means a whole lot of that. Why? Because we're sojourners in a foreign land preaching a message that the people that are of this land don't want to hear. And in fact, the world is going to hate you because you love God. That's what Jesus said. The world's going to hate you because you put him first and serve him. You'll catch flack for telling your employer, I'm not available Sunday morning because I go to church. You'll be ridiculed for volunteering to serve in the church. You're not getting paid for that? What are you, some kind of slave? It happens all the time. You'll suffer rejection when you put Jesus and others first before yourself, right? You'll be ridiculed for doing what's right over what's best for you in that sense, but later your rewards will come. And that's why Jesus said, store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where moth and rust do not destroy and thieves don't steal. So then he says, the time has come to destroy those who destroy the earth. Now, you know, man, climate change advocates, they love this verse, right? They just love this verse. The time has come to destroy those who destroy the earth. You and your polluting vehicles and your overconsumption of energy, and, and that's not at all what he's talking about, Okay. He's not talking about pollution. He's not talking about melting icebergs or carbon footprints. He's talking about sin. He's talking about sin. The idea is that way back in the beginning, Satan um, um, came into the garden and, and lured mankind into sin, and he usurped the whole thing, and man gave over the title deed to, to, to Satan, and in that whole instance, that's when sin and death entered the world, and all of those who are aligned with Satan against God by rejecting Christ are the ones who have ruined the earth, polluted God's creation, destroyed his creation because sin destroys the heart of man. That is where it all starts and everything else is a result of the heart of man being destroyed. So verse 19, it says, then the temple of God in heaven was opened and the ark of his covenant appeared in the temple. There were flashes of lightning, rumblings and peals of thunder and earthquake and severe hail. And so this picture, again, is when the time comes, 
that, that God's house will be fully, op- fully open to, to, to all who, who are his. The, the, the opening to the innermost sanctum of his presence will be accessible. No more veil, no more block, no more anything. You know, Jesus came to, to, to die to, to give us that access to God, and, and right now we, we have access through prayer and worship, but the time is coming where we will be there with him in God's presence. Now, um, some look at this. Uh, the language here could be both figurative or literal, or both, okay? But literally, um, Hebrews really hammers the point that the tabernacle on earth was a model of the true temple in heaven, right? It, it says it's a model. So there's a literal idea, and of course in Revelation we've already seen that John is observing thrones and altars and floor-like glass and all kinds of stuff. So it could be literally referring to some actual temple of God there in the heavenlies that'll be open to us. Figuratively, it could simply be referring to the idea that God's full covenant in heaven, the covenant of salvation will be fully realized and available to us there in heaven. The ark there um, was in the temple on earth and the ark here on earth contained the 10 commandments of God's law and they were shattered, which was a picture that within the ark uh, under the mercy seat was the broken law because man had broke God's law. But the blood was sprinkled on that seat to say, God, please forgive them for that. And that lid being the mercy seat where the blood was sprinkled, it was the picture of God forgiving the sins of his people. And here on earth, that room, that holy of holies, that innermost place where the ark was, was only accessible by one guy, the high priest, on one day a year. So here the picture of God, God's temple being opened and the ark of the a covenant appearing there, it, just, it could be a, a figurative picture of, of that access that access to that covenant fully realized, fully perfected is, is accessible to all at all times. Like God's saying here at the end of all things, like in heaven, fellowship is gonna be perfect and broke, unbroken, intimate at all times based upon the shed blood of Jesus Christ. Um, it could go either way there. But as we look around our world today, we see many people living as if nothing will ever change, that life is just always gonna go on and time is just gonna march forward with no change that there'll be no catastrophes, there'll be no cataclysms, everything will continue just as it always has. And some people we talk to, you know, and we try and share the, the fact that the kingdom is coming and judgment is coming and God offers salvation to you, they say, look, you know, my, my grandpa said Jesus was coming back and he didn't. And my parents told me Jesus was coming back and he didn't. And now you're saying Jesus is coming back and you know what? I don't think he is. But the Bible tells us that we cannot count God's long-suffering as negligence. We can't count his patience as neglect. And we can't buy into the idea that, yeah, it has been a long time. No, he's coming back. He is coming back. And yes, things are getting worse, and humanity is getting more and more debauched. And yes, Jesus will return. And his kingdom will come. The end of all of it is coming. And so for us today, as we live today, there is still hope in the face of this very dark direction that, that the history of mankind is, is marching into. God's kingdom will come. His will will be done. Human history is heading somewhere, like I said, and everything is exactly on God's schedule as we're seeing here in Revelation. God knows. And the day is coming when Jesus Christ, God Almighty, will reign forever and ever and he will be reigning in a kingdom that has no end. So for us today as God's people, with that encouragement and that hope, if we know that future is coming, what are you doing to invest in it? What are you doing to invest in that future, to be prepared and ready for that future? For the Christian, our future, our hope, it's heaven. It's paradise with God, and and, and that is what we should be investing in above all. Storing our treasures up in heaven where moth and rust do not destroy, where thieves do not break in and steal. And the idea is, is if, if everything important to you is in this life, you're going to be sorely disappointed because you're going to leave this life one day. But what we've stored up in, in the heavenlies, what we've done for God, how we've lived for him, how we've taken Jesus not just into our lives but then shared him to the people we come across, all of that work of living in an obedient life to him and shining the light of the gospel, all of that is storing up our treasures to come. 
And so the forecast here, in the, in the midst of this tribulation period that we're reading about through Revelation, the forecast here in Revelation 11 is that it's all gonna be fine soon because the one who knows the future said so. His kingdom is coming. So I encourage all of us, let's get ready for that kingdom to come. Let's get ready for that kingdom by worshiping and serving the king every day here on earth. Amen? All right, let's pray. Father, we love you so much, God, and we thank you, Lord. We believe your word, and we know it's true, even the hard stuff. God, we know that it is not your hope that any would perish, but that all would find eternal life. And so, God, you put the offer out there to all who would hear the gospel of Jesus Christ, the reality that they have sinned against you, and that as a holy and just and right and perfect God, that, Lord, you have to judge sin. You just can't turn a blind eye because then you would be unjust. And so, God, we know that your wrath is coming upon this earth. We know that a time is coming where this age of grace will be over, God. And so, Lord, we know that we have a mandate as your people to not just live as Christians, but to shine as Christians. Yes, Lord, to be obedient to you in our daily living and obedient to you in our families and our marriages and obedient to you in raising our kids and obedient to you at work and all of that. But all of that, Lord, is a function of us being witnesses of who you are in our lives and witnesses of the truth that we believe in. And so help us, God. But Lord, we do hold to the hope that one day you will judge all of it. And we thank you for that. God, we know that it isn't wrong and inappropriate for us to be thankful that you will one day judge sin finally and completely. But God, may we never in that thankfulness, God, find any joy in anybody perishing without you. So help us, Lord, to be motivated by what is to come, your kingdom come and your will to be done one day. Motivated, Lord, to be people who just shine the light of the gospel. Lord, we love you so much. We thank you for our salvation. We thank you for the blessings in our lives. And we even thank you for the difficulties, God, because we know if the difficulties weren't there, we're probably not doing what we should be doing here on this earth, Lord. Help us to be lights on, that, lights on the hill, Lord. Fill us with your spirit. Empower us and equip us to do what you're calling us to do as we wait for your kingdom to come. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. Let's worship, guys.